This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, two segments we taped before Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building yesterday. Greg Gonsalves talks about vaccine distribution, ethics, and politics. And Ella Taylor talks about documentaries on TV this week. But first... We're taping uh, this segment Wednesday evening after Trump supporters stormed the Capitol and halted the counting of electoral votes. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect, and he lives a few blocks from the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Harold, thanks for joining us tonight. Always a pleasure, John. Fortunately, it's more like 20 blocks, so... Uh... My neighborhood is relatively quiet, and the only nuts in my neighborhood are the ones who live here. Okay. Well, you know, I'm an American historian. I can say, speaking as a professional, this is an unprecedented event in American history. It's got to be one of the, maybe the worst day for American democracy, at least, I don't know, since 1812 or something. What's your perspective on what we saw today? Uh, well, in, in a sense, I was not surprised by the events of the day. This is simply the uh, quintessence of Trumpism. You take a pathological narcissist who has no particular knowledge of or regard for democratic norms or just democracy, but with a real ability to stir up you know, a, a segment of the public uh, that thinks that uh, the, the old order, that uh, they were given certain advantages uh, under, uh, is, is under threat by a more diverse female, you name it, population, and lying to them consistently, and abetted by uh, almost the entire Republican Party. Uh, I mean, we had deathbed conversions today, as <laughs> finally Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell uh, got off the Trump train about four years too late. Uh, but, you know, you, you mix all that stuff together, uh, and uh, you you get what we got today. Now, you know, as someone who's been covering politics for a long time, if, if you go back, there's always been a kind of violent edge and, and a, a sense of rage uh, when you cover a Trump rally when I covered Pat Buchanan back in the early and mid-1990s. That was always there. This is, this is the same phenomenon. This is part of the George Wallace phenomenon too. And let, let's face it, uh, the, the, the violence that um, accompanied uh, the politics of George Wallace is now the violence that accompanies the politics of Donald Trump. And that's what we saw today. It was, I think, entirely predictable. And, uh, and here we are. You know, our, our uh, colleagues have been debating what to call what happened today. I'm sort of against calling it a coup or even a coup attempt because there there really was no plan to seize power here. This was a disruption of the congressional certification of the electoral college vote, which let's face it, the authorities will have already cleared most of the Capitol building. Congress will reconvene, I don't know, tonight or tomorrow or sometime. They, they will tonight. finish their job. Joe Biden will be confirmed by Congress as the president-elect, and this will be a bad day in, in our past. Of course, there's the other hand, which is 
which one of the parts of the other hand is which Republicans, as you say, jumped ship at the last minute and which are sticking with him. You mentioned uh, Mike Pence, Mike Pence's gaze at Donald Trump. We haven't seen anything like it in Washington since, you know, Nancy Reagan left the White House. Exactly. He's been the most worshipful person until until today when he tweeted the violence and destruction taking place at the U.S. Capitol must stop and it must stop now. Anyone involved must respect law enforcement officers and immediately leave the building. This attack on our Capitol will not be tolerated and those involved will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Mike Pence. Well, bravo, Mike. As you say, a little late, but certainly a lot better than never and a lot better than what the president said today, which was addressed to the people who had disrupted Congress. I love you. Uh, well, he loves himself and <laughs> they seem to love him. Then he extends his love to them as well. In terms of how to describe this, you know, famously Marx said every event in history occurs as it were twice. The first time is tragedy. The second time is farce. I think this consolidated tragedy and farce today. It, was, it wasn't sequential as uh, Marx uh, said, it was simultaneous because it was utterly serious uh, as an indication of how, you know, a portion of the American electorate can be stirred up to recreate the day of the locust uh, to cite Nathaniel West. You know, so it was serious and ridiculous at, at one and the same time. And I, I, I think that's that's what we saw. Speaking of Mike Pence, the reporting now, I don't know if it's uh, going to be uh, contradicted or augmented going forward, is that the, the executive branch has to approve the deployment of the National Guard, and that's usually the responsibility of the president. But the reporting now is that it was actually Pence, not Trump, who, uh, who did it, uh, which, which yeah. almost suggests that we have a de facto 25th Amendment situation, uh, but unfortunately not yet a uh, full uh, de jure 25th Amendment situation, which is to say, you know, Trump is in sort of the, the, narrow, the narrow role of, of fiddling while, while the Capitol burns, uh, but Pence then doesn't want the Capitol to burn and, and he essentially exercises that uh, executive power. Meanwhile, on the other side, there are some Republicans who are not breaking with the president over this. Would you care to name any names here? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think the, the two Republicans who uh, the, the mess that the uh, ceremonial administration of the electoral vote uh, count, uh, because that's to be approved by a House member and a Senate member, and, and no Senate member approved it uh, until Josh Hawley said he wanted to contest Pennsylvania, and then uh, Ted Cruz said he wanted to contest Arizona, and that sort of opened the floodgates for making today particularly, uh, you know, in, in this instance, farcical turning tragic. Uh, and of course, both of them are planning to run for president uh, in 2024 uh, in the Republican primaries, hoping to win uh, Trump's base to their column. Uh, having actually staked out that position, that left other 2024 aspirants who you know, couldn't go there because the space was occupied, not because they weren't willing to do it, I suspect, like Tom Cotton, a right-wing senator from Arkansas, to take the opposing viewpoint because uh, there was no room at the 
Trump base in since uh, uh, Cruz and Hawley had already uh, set up housekeeping. So uh, anyway, uh, now the, the, the question going forward tonight, which people will know tomorrow, uh, is whether they're going to continue contesting all these states or just figuring out that uh, the, the, the better course of valor having uh, already, you know, looked absolutely pernicious to the nation's television watching audience is just to let the other challenges uh, go by the boards. Yeah, let's talk about the nation's television watching audience for for a minute here. Um, we've seen the Republican Party. We've seen two faces of the Republican Party here. We've seen the can we call them deplorables or is that still a bad word? Oh, I think deplorables is an excellent description here. <laughs> uh, we've seen the deplorables with the tattoos taking selfies of themselves in Nancy Pelosi's chair, you know, and then there's the mass of the Republican Party who are Republicans because they sort of believe in low taxes and pro-business policies and less regulation. And that's the old Republican Party. Yes. Uh, and a lot of them were reluctant to vote for Trump this time. But, uh, you know, we call them the suburban moms, some of them. It's hard to believe the suburban moms are going to stick with the Republican Party of Trump. But maybe I'm too optimistic here. Well, we, you know, we've already seen, um, I mean, you know, we're, we're today not such a, a gobsmacking historic event. Yesterday in Georgia was a gobsmacking historic. Thank event you, thank you. Let's not. Yes, and yes. please. Where, let's... where the suburban moms said, you know, enough is enough, uh, which is something Joe Biden said today in in his talk, uh, and uh, helped elect uh, a black and a Jewish candidate uh, to represent Georgia in the United States Senate. This is a a kind of epochal event, <laughs> if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, in and of itself, uh, because it, it, it both because of who Georgia voted for, and because it means the Senate will be controlled by the Democrats for uh, you know the next two years, which is uh, sort of the sine qua non of getting anything done. Uh, now that uh, Joe Biden's going to be president, the Democrats will actually control as narrowly as humanly possible, but nonetheless control both houses of Congress. So. Uh... Few other things I want to take up about what we saw today in Washington. I wonder what you thought about uh, the Washington police. Was this incompetence, or some of our uh, friends on Twitter think it was something worse than incompetence? I don't know. I was reminded of uh, you know the pirates of uh, the cops and the pirates of Penzance who uh, keep saying they're about to go off and and quell the pirates and actually don't leave uh, <laughs> uh, their station house. Uh, it, that's a good question. I mean, you know, uh, historically, police departments uh, have all of these intelligence bureaus and whatnot that spy on the left. But, you know, and we've seen this in Germany recently, uh, but there are a lot of right wing nuts and thugs uh, in police departments who, uh, at some level, uh, sympathize with uh, the rioters that we saw today. Uh, so it, it, it's we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Beyond that, I mean, it, it's clear that the Capitol Police, who were unfortunately deferred to by other uh, law enforcement agencies, had, you know, were just had no idea. Uh, a, a friend of mine described them today as a sort of glorified mall cops. You know, I mean, they're, they're not they're not really cops. And uh, up until today, that didn't pose an existential threat to anyone or anything. Today, it did. But, you know, look, I, I thought 
what happened today was largely predictable. It's not my job to do that. I'm, you know, I'm not a law enforcement guy, to put it mildly. Uh, but you would think someone in law enforcement would have uh, uh, had a similar realization that they, these were, you know, stoked up lunatics. Uh, and you really ought to take precautions, particularly when Donald Trump is about to make a 90-minute speech to them, uh, essentially saying, go to the Capitol and, uh, you know, and uh, as Trump said in a, in a tweet uh, a week and a half ago, it'll be wild. That was his enthusiastic description of what would happen. And yes, it was wild. And why the cops failed to respond is as yet still unknown, but a huge, huge deficiency. I imagine that the members of the Senate and the members of the House of Representatives will now insist that the Capitol Police become a more professional force concerned with protecting them and their staffs now that their, uh, let's say, deficiencies uh, have been exposed. I would I would imagine so. And I would also imagine that, you know, today introduced and this is the tragic side today introduced a note of real danger to uh, a whole set of elected officials in, in recent weeks, as much Republicans as, uh, as Democrats. I mean, uh, uh, Georgia Secretary of State Raffenberger had to, to have police protection today, I gather. And, and so I do think our elected officials are, are probably going to get uh, more security details than they have had before. And we've certainly seen in Washington, I don't need to tell you, if Washington wants to have security, they can have massive security. What we saw this summer for Black Lives Matter. Why don't you describe what the streets of Washington were like this summer when there were Black Lives Matter protests? Oh, they were blocked off. Uh, you, you couldn't go hither or yon or, <laughs> or here or there. And various armed vehicles around uh, just to make sure that no one did uh, stray past the lines. You know, there was none of that uh, today. And just, you know, to say this was a dereliction of duty, I mean, it was. But uh, again, I would suspect there'd be some kind of congressional investigation and not even one that, you know, they can keep in-house on, on how today got screwed up. And particularly since the Democrats will control both houses of Congress now, I would expect we'll, uh, we'll have some pretty thorough investigating as to uh, who was asleep at the switch or perhaps even complicit. I mean, we did see video of Capitol Police escorting, what shall we call them, insurrectionists uh, out of the Capitol, down the steps uh, in a semi-friendly way. As I recall, they didn't treat Black Lives Matter that way. Uh, you recall right, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there, there are a lot of questions that remain to be answered, and, and there may be uh, I would anticipate some significant personnel shifts. And I also wondered what you thought about the, the media coverage. I switched, as usual, between MSNBC and CNN. In a way, it was sort of TV news at its best because they, they know what good pictures are. And they had, they had lots of cameras there. They also had the C-SPAN cameras inside the chambers. So we got a very vivid picture of what it looks like when insurrectionists stormed the Capitol, something you don't get in totalitarian countries. The commentary, I thought, was more uneven. It was. And I, you know, out of sort of an obligation to see how the other half views TV, uh, I was looking at Fox and I was looking at, uh, uh, you know, the, the, this preempted the non-cable news networks. It was on 
you know, for hours and hours, you know, it was a major national event. So it was on all, all of the networks, cable and not cable. And uh, it, it, was, it was a mixed bag. But I mean, even on Fox, you had, uh, you know, they, they kind of avoided some of the commentary uh, that you heard on, on other networks, but some of it was pretty strong. And some of the Republican elected officials have been pretty strong today. Liz Cheney basically said, this is Donald Trump's fault you know, which for the third ranking member of the House delegation is, uh, is, is, is pretty explicit. Uh, you know, even before today, we were talking about the rift in the Republican Party. You know, I don't think the uh, people critical of Trump constitute a majority of, uh, of the Republican base, but I think this gives a certain ascendancy, and we don't know for how long, to the relatively few Republicans who have been uh, somewhat critical of Trump and have tried to distance themselves throughout. That's a small band, but I think they, they sort of unexpectedly find themselves in a certain ascendancy today. And like I said, they're getting the deathbed converts like, uh, like, like Mitch McConnell. So the, Republican, the future of the Republican Party today uh, is, is really kind of fascinating. I mean, I do think they've lost a lot of middle-class suburban voters who have been with them for time immemorial. And it, it, it's placed a lot of Republican officials in a kind of untenable position. I mean, just having to vote, and this was why McConnell didn't want the Senate to sanction, uh, you know, debating the Electoral College. That was a lose-lose proposition. No matter how you voted, you managed to estrange a lot of Republicans. I think now voting uh, to uphold the challenges actually has more risks than it did eight hours ago. And that brings us back to Georgia, which really should have been the story of today. Georgia elected its first black Democrat from the South since ever. And Georgia elected a Jewish senator. And that is, as you say, historic event. In part, this is something that uh, Stacey Abrams' New Georgia Project has been working on for a decade. In part, it was the work of a tremendous grassroots door-to-door campaign that you and I have talked about here before, led in part by Unite Here and the SEIU. But it was also aided, let us not forget, in part by Donald Trump and his crazy demands uh, and speech uh, over the last couple of days. How do you add this all up? Well, actually, if I can remember back all the way to this morning, which is, you know, uh, uh, this has been a very long day uh, in in all kinds of ways. There were a lot of Republicans this morning who were blaming Donald Trump for losing Georgia. So uh, the anti-Trump genie is is increasingly out of the Republican lamp or bottle or whatever it is that genies are supposed to inhabit. And it's, it's going to grow. Republicans will have a very interesting aftermath to all this. Uh, And I think uh, there'll be uh, a great deal more going back and forth with accusations than we've seen before. Be interesting to see how the big three uh, Fox uh, bloviators uh, from eight to 11 every night play this. I suspect Rupert Murdoch has put the word out to as far as you can go to dump Trump, please do it tonight. Uh, So we shall see. 
And on the other hand, always we have the other hand, Stacey Abrams has pointed the way for Democrats to gain ground in lots of places, door to door, face to face, months and years of organizing is the way you make for victories. Absolutely. And that's a lesson that's also has been taken in Nevada and Arizona. Uh, you know, the entire Southwest uh, has moved into the Democratic column, um, you know, and Texas gets progressively more progressive, less right wing with every successive election, uh, even this year, when when the victory margin by Trump was, was shrunk to 6%. So um, the demographics move in this direction, but demographics are a necessary but not sufficient condition for political transformation. And if you want to know what's sufficient, yeah, look at Georgia. So what's going to happen now is Congress will reconvene. Congress will finish its job and we'll see how many Republicans want to continue to object to the Electoral College vote, strictly symbolic political gesture in terms of its potential consequences. On January 20th at noon, Chief Justice John Roberts will swear in Joe Biden as President of the United States. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, great to have you on the show today. Crazy day, but always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. The first group of Americans to receive the COVID vaccine are healthcare workers. There are about 20 million of them, and a lot of them are already getting ready for their second shot. Also, residents of nursing homes are in the first group. That's another 3 million people. Who should come next? For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He was in the New York Times Magazine this last weekend. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, the CDC recommended that coming after the healthcare workers and residents of nursing homes should be two very different groups. People who are 75 and older, we're told there's 20 million of those, and 30 million people who are frontline essential workers. This is first responders, grocery store workers, public transit and postal workers, teachers, daycare providers. States don't have to follow this, this priority, but a lot of them probably uh, will. The question of who should come first and who should come next, is that a question we should leave to the scientists? There's lots of trade-offs in figuring out who gets vaccines in a, in, in a situation of scarcity like we have now. We don't have enough vaccines to go around. And so they're trying to thread the needle. They're trying to figure out, do you do it based on mortality? Maybe you should give it to everybody over 65. But then suppose you want to keep the trains literally running on time and schools open and daycares open and your grocery store open. Maybe then you, you make a question about societal functioning. Um, if we knew these vaccines prevented infection, maybe there'd be a case for not uh, just looking at mortality, but for looking for where there's heavy concentrations of transmission in different occupational sectors, different kinds of settings. 
so there's lots of things to think about in terms of these trade-offs. And the CDC did a reasonable job of it. The states are going to do their own sort of variations on the theme. The big question is why we're in this situation today where we're having to do this sort of make these Sophie's choices when we could have scaled up our production in a, in a much ro- more robust fashion and more importantly, gotten our delivery and implementation in order. You know, lots of vaccines are being sent out by the federal government, not that many have gotten into the arms of the people who need them yet. You know, so there's a there's a bottleneck post-supply um, that we have to have to address. I want to just look at the, the question of the essential workers for uh, another minute. Another factor that separates them from the over 75 group is if you're over 75, you can stay home. If you're an essential worker, we don't want you to stay home. We want you to go to work and therefore... We want you to put yourself in a position where you're more likely to be exposed. And the kind of people who do essential work are working class people who are more likely to become super spreaders because they're in contact with many more people during the day than the over 75 people staying home. They live in multi-generational families more, more frequently, in crowded housing much more frequently. On the other hand, as you say, if they get the disease, they're more likely to recover than people who are over 75. And it seems to me this isn't really a question for science. This is a question about ethics. It is. But public health is not just uh, a scientific field. It's hemmed in on, by politics on every side. It's not just ethics because there's some data that you can use to, to understand what risk is. Mortality. You're saying certain professions are more likely to be exposed to the virus. Well, we can figure that out by looking at transmission patterns, um, looking at mobility patterns, looking at other sorts of epidemiological information. So these are societal choices we're making, not just epidemiological ones, but they have to be informed by evidence to the greatest deal possible. And the reason it's left to the states is because the states are going to have to make the the real hard choices about um, what to do with limited supply. Um, and the CDC is trying to give good guidance based on the on on reasonable scientific grounds. And, you know, people study these issues as a matter of um, academic disciplines within public health. Public health isn't just epidemiology. You know, there's bioethics, there's whole sets of disciplines under the giant umbrella of public health that have been part of these deliberations and these and this thinking, not just, you know, in the past six months, but, you know, for, for years and years and years about how to sort of deal with uh, these kinds of uh, choices in the midst of scarcity. I learned from the New York Times Magazine panel that you were part of on Sunday, that there's some fascinating evidence your profession has come up with about the concept of the over 75 group as being the most endangered. The average age of death from COVID for a white person is 81, but for a Latino person, it's 67. For a black person, it's 72. So, Many Black and Latino people who die of COVID never make it to 75. Is that right? Yeah, that's what the, that's what, I think it was my colleague from Illinois who talked about this in terms of um, what she's thinking about to doing in, 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 in her state, because the prognosis for people with COVID under different race, racial and ethnic groups is disparate, as we've talked about it. And, and you know, one of the other things that's been talked about in the context of um, vaccine allocation is how do you deal with sort of these health disparities. And it's not just essential workers or over 75s, um, because not all essential workers and all over 75s 
have the same kind of risk. Some of it's driven by um, minority status, ethnic status, but some of it's dealt with by pre-existing conditions and other sort of determinants of health. So I think one of the things that I was hoping to get across in the conversation with the New York Times was that it's really complicated stuff. It's um, These are hard social and epidemiological choices, um, and there's no optimal answer. You are making value judgments, but reasonably informed judgments based on ethical principles, um, on scientific evidence, on political reality. When the vaccines get approved, it's because they've been shown to be both safe and effective. But how exactly did they define effective? Does effective mean they, they, they won't spread the infection to others? So the, the vaccines that have come out, um, largely the endpoint or the, the measure of efficacy in the trials has been prevention of severe disease, right? Hospitalization and death. The question of whether they prevent transmission is an open one. And we're waiting to see if, if the antibody protection that confers resistance against disease progression also translates to transmission. So you know, the reason we're talking about mortality and over 75s and nursing homes is because we know these vaccines can prevent death. Um, if we have more robust data that suggests they can prevent infection, you know, the calculus will change. New vaccines coming out might have uh, an edge on that, and we might be thinking about certain groups are going to get one vaccine because it prevents infection better, and another group will get a, a set of vaccines because it reduces the chance for, 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 for death. And, you know, the other thing is that these vaccines were studied in clinical trials, right? And so the efficacy you saw there, 85%, 95%, is about what happens in the context of a clinical trial where everything is set up to, to measure things perfectly. In the real world, you know, if we stop wearing our masks, stop doing social distancing, you know, we're basically making trouble for the vaccine because the vaccine is only as good as, as its part in a, in a comprehensive approach to disease prevention. You know, water is pretty good at putting out a fire, but not if there's a wall of fire and a forest fire like in the, that we've seen in California in the past couple of years. Uh, a, a fire, a single fire hose is not going to do much good. So we, so the the real world effectiveness of these vaccines depends on lots of our own behavior in the next coming weeks and months. So Biden takes office on January 20th. What what should he be doing on day one to make up for all the problems we're now having with the pr production and distribution of vaccines? Well, one is, you know, there's still sort of questions about how cooperative the Trump administration is being with the transition. We've seen it in the Defense Department and other national security sectors of the government. But we need to know what the plan was. You know, what was the rollout plan? And we're going to have to sort of, the Biden administration is going to have to look, take a close look at how we've allocated vaccines, um, how we're figuring out delivery and, and production and all these sort of different things to get us on the path towards fuller coverage much more quickly. He's talked about invoking the Defense Production Act, um, which is one way in which he can ask manufacturers to sort of devote their uh, resources to, to producing vaccine for the national supply. But there's things back in the pipeline of vaccine, the components that don't necessarily lend themselves to just sort of turning up the dial and making it go faster. You're going to have to build new factories and new plants. Um, so there's a lot of stuff to do that they were never prepared to do. Operation Warp Speed was all about R&D. It was never about delivery. And it shows, basically. And one of the key factors, which we've mentioned here in past conversations, is about the the different vaccines require different 
degrees of complicated handling. The, the first one, the Pfizer vaccine, has to require super refrigeration. My impression is that hospitals are the main places that carry this right now. The Moderna vaccine requires ordinary refrigeration. So that means most pharmacies at, this is the Walmarts and the CVSs and uh, everywhere in the country where there are pharmacies that have, that are used to refrigerating medicines. But what we really need for most of the world is vaccines that don't require refrigeration at all. We're talking here about the global south. Uh, where do we stand on that research and development? Well, the cold chain is not a deal breaker for the global south. The Ebola vaccine, I think, needs a cold chain. I think there are plenty of vaccines that, that require cold chain have been distributed around the world. The big thing is about vaccine hoarding. The U.S., Canada, Europe, some other countries like Australia and others have basically sucked up all the supply of vaccines. So there's really none left to go around. Um, there are countries with reasonably robust health infrastructures like South Africa and, and others that are middle-income countries, which are at the back of the line for, for, for access to these vaccines. And there have been sort of international initiatives to, to, to make sure this doesn't happen, but they haven't necessarily been successful yet. They've not raised enough money to, to do what they need to do. And the vaccine supply has already been allocated uh, and, and spoken for by a lot of these sort of countries in the global north. And so we're in a situation where we're creating this sort of medical apartheid where if you're in a rich country, you're going to get vaccinated way before your peers in a country in the global south. And the problem is, is that the virus doesn't care where you live. Unless we stomp out the virus across the, the world, it's always going to be a risk to the rest of us. We don't know how long these vaccines uh, are going to confer protection. We're not going to be able to reach every nook and cranny of people who need to be vaccinated. And so we don't want imported cases coming into the, the U.S. or anywhere else. But if you can't sort of guarantee that everybody on the planet is going to get vaccinated or has access to it, you're setting us up for a long-term uh, problem. And what's your understanding of the production schedule now when there will be enough for the global south? It doesn't sound like it's anytime soon. I was reading in a South African newspaper this morning that later in 2021 that people will start getting it there, which is at least six months to a year behind the rest of us. And that doesn't even talk about sort of poorer countries in the global south um, and, and what their plans are to get access to these vaccines. I have a friend who lives in Hungary, and she says in Hungary for weeks, they've had three different vaccines. They have the Russian vaccine, Sputnik. They have something from China. And then they have one of, one of ours that got uh, approved right away. Is that going to help in the global south, that these other sources of vaccines that we aren't testing? Nobody's really seen the data for the Russian vaccine, and Russia is selling it all over the place. And so it's going to make things complicated. If I've been vaccinated with the Russian vaccine and it turns out not to work, what's going to incentivize me to come in to get the Moderna vaccine when it shows up in, in, in my country? And so this is an international global health problem. It's not a question about national vaccine policy. It's about global vaccine policy. We have to do this in a way that's coordinated across the globe. And one of the things that Biden will do when we uh, hit January is and go back into the World Health Organization, where these decisions should have been discussed all throughout 2020. One smaller domestic question that has a lot of my friends agitated, teachers. Where should teachers be in the hierarchy of who gets it first, given, given the scarcity that we're facing now. Little kids have their whole lives ahead of them as opposed to the 90-year-olds and the 80-year-olds. They've lost a whole year of their short lives. 
We want them in school. Uh, so shouldn't teachers have higher priority than lots of other people? Well, they are now part of frontline essential workers. And I think, I think there's been a lot of pressure because of the very reasons you discussed to ensure that teachers get priority in terms of vaccine administration, not because they have any specific mortality risk because of their median or mean age. It's that we want schools to be the last to close and the first to open. Joe Biden has said he wants to open, have schools open very, very quickly within its first 100 days. And in order to do that, you're going to have to protect teachers and the rest of school staff um, who could catch this as a matter of a priority. We have to make trade-offs. Um, and we think kids and teachers are important. And that's what the CDC recommended, to, you know, 10 days ago. You know, I won't get a vaccine, you know, for, for many, many, many months. And that's fine with me. So the teachers have very strong unions fighting for, for them. Old people, of course, have the AARP. But a lot of people in what should be high priority groups don't have strong lobbying and political groups. Uh, Want to remind us of who is likely to be in that latter group? Well, look, we know that the pandemic has basically had a, uh, a disproportionate impact in communities of color. And both the National Academies of Science, uh, Engineering and Medicine and different states have suggested using the Social Vulnerability Index, which is a measure that the CDC uses to measure social vulnerability, of which race is one of 15 components. And it's important that we think about how to do this uh, so that we don't just think about age categories or, or occupational categories, but realize that if you have two different communities with the same number of over 75-year-olds, um, one community, which is richer, has more spacious living arrangements, that has much more um, access to health care, probably is at less risk of developing disease and developing severe complications than a, a similar neighborhood two miles down the road, which which is historically um, had high rates of diabetes and obesity, housing overcrowding. And so social vulnerability index is a way to do this um, and addresses the sort of need for communities that have been hardest hit for this by this pandemic to, to get protection from it first and foremost. Any final thoughts on questions that we haven't raised here? Get vaccinated when, you, when, it, when your turn comes up. I know there are people still out there worrying about, are these vaccines safe and effective? Yes, they are. If you want to go back to normal or close to it, the vaccine is one part of it, but don't take off your masks and keep up your social distancing because the vaccines are only good in combination with all these other things. Greg Gonsalves, read him at thenation.com. Greg, great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk again about TV and the age of the virus. This is news you can use from Ella Taylor. She's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The L.A. Weekly, The Atlantic, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Well, there's a new documentary out now called The Dissident. It investigates the murder of Saudi dissident and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, 
who was critical of the policies of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Khashoggi was murdered and his body was dismembered in October 2018 after he entered the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul. The documentary about his murder there got great reviews at Sundance. The Hollywood Reporter called it vigorous, deep, and comprehensive, and Variety said it was a documentary thriller of staggering relevance, and it was endorsed by Hillary Clinton. She came to the premiere at Sundance and called the film, quote, chillingly effective. But even though the director won an Oscar for his last documentary, even though this one has 97% positive reviews from critics, according to Rotten Tomatoes, both Amazon Prime and Netflix refused to handle this one. Apparently, Amazon Prime and Netflix were concerned about showing the dissident internationally. They seemed to be worried about what might happen if they streamed it in Egypt or in China or Russia or Pakistan or India. You have seen the dissident. Uh, what's in it? Well, in fact, Amazon is going to show it now. So uh, it looks like perhaps they were shamed into it, uh, along with Apple TV and, and iTunes and others. Um, but uh, my guess is what's what's in it that they don't like is that it takes a, a, a dim view of global uh, indifference and evasion. In other words, oil and money are the reasons, as you can imagine, because... Uh, Jamal Khashoggi is, uh, was Saudi Arabian, um, and this is the story not only of uh, his murder, and uh, there is there are quite graphic recaps, but we need to know them because this was an act of such barbarism uh, and and cruelty that it surpasses belief. But this is a much, it takes a much broader view. It's directed by Brian Fogel, who made um, another film called Icarus, which was about uh, Russian involvement in sports, in doping scandals, uh, international sports. That was also, as you say, uh, won an Academy Award. And what he's trying to do here, and I think very successfully on the whole, is to take a global view and provide the context for uh, the murder and the subsequent cover-up by uh, the Saudi Arabians. So it is a story in part about who Jamal Khashoggi was, and it does fill out the picture quite considerably because he was, uh, we know him primarily because he wrote for the Washington Post and had left Saudi Arabia to become, uh, to write for them and, and other outlets. But in fact, in Saudi Arabia, he was very much an insider which is to say that he had no objection to monarchy, um, but he did have a devotion to freedom of speech. And he was very much radicalized by the Arab Spring and in particular um, the uprising in Tahrir Square in Egypt. The crackdown following that, uh, which effectively uh, killed off the Arab Spring, was in fact financed uh, and to some degree manned by the Saudi Arabians, uh, without whom the problem Egypt could not have accomplished such a uh, squashing. And uh, it, it is a thriller documentary, it's being called that, and it really is that because it fans out from the murder 
uh, and the appalling uh, cover-up to focus on a young activist and dissident um, whose name is uh, Omar Abdulaziz. And I hope to high heaven that that is not his real name because I think his life is in grave danger given what we learn um, about what's happened here. But there are extensive interviews with him. He lives in Canada where he's a student, but he's organized um, a YouTube show which is devoted to um, opposition to the regime of Mohammed bin Salman or MBS as he likes to call himself and everybody else calls him as if they were somehow familiar with this appalling man. And the activist is talking about uh, his friendship with Khashoggi. They actually work together. It's not exactly clear on what, but uh, who was a mentor to him. He's very different from Khashoggi, who was very circumspect and, and knew how to handle authority. This guy is a hothead, which is one of the reasons that uh, he's a self-confessed hothead. It's one of the reasons that I feared for his life. Um, and the third player in this um, is Hatice Genghis, um, who was uh, Khashoggi's fiance and continues to fight to give to keep his memory and his legacy alive, and also for redress for the appalling uh, murders. It is about the psychopathic personality of MBS, who will go to any lengths to eliminate opposition and, and dissidents, and who used, uh, we have now learned from, from investigations both by Turkey, where the murder happened, and by the United Nations, used people very high and flew into Turkey, very highly placed people in the administration to murder, dismember, and then... Uh, set fire to Khashoggi. So this was as much an act of malice and retribution and warning to others. So this young man, his associate Abdulaziz, is very brave and probably foolhardy. It's also very crucially a story of cyber technology um, and spyware, which I'm sorry to say that uh, the Israelis gave to Saudi Arabia a, a device called Pegasus, which allows people to invade other self other people's cell phones not only to record you know and, and know where they are and what they're doing but also to destroy some of their uh, some of their work uh, on their cell phones and of course that could easily broaden out and there have been other documentaries about this into the story of how um, dissidence is quelled largely through spyware, um, not not th not only through more traditional methods. Now, uh, and in fact, it was the Saudi Arabians who invaded Jeff Bezos's uh, cell phone and exposed an affair uh, that he was having. That ended up breaking up his marriage. Probably a good thing because his ex-wife is a great philanthropist these days. <laughs> Um, so we, we have to thank MBS for that. <laughs> yes, we have to thank MBS for that. And that was because Jeff Bezos um, threw in his lot with Hatice and, and uh, has been helping her and moved away from uh, MBS. The movie jumps around in time an awful lot, um, not to especially helpful effect because it, it, you get confused about where you are uh, in the story. It is enormously effective and uh, enormously informative and I recommend it highly. 
Well, that's The Dissident, the new documentary, and you say it is now going to play on Amazon Prime starting on January 8th, is that correct? Yes, and uh, also Apple TV and iTunes and a whole bunch of others. I think people should really look it up because I suspect that given what you said at the beginning, these, this is changing all around the picture of where it will play. But uh, it was highly regarded at Sundance and, and rightly so. It is two hours long, but uh, it's by no means a boring two, thousand, uh, two hours long. Well, the other film I want to talk about is a Western, a feature film, that I had been waiting for called News of the World. It's about Texas just after the Civil War and a guy who has a traveling show where he reads newspapers from around the country and around the world and people pay money a dime to come and see and hear this show. It was a wonderful novel written by somebody I never heard of before named Paulette Giles. And now it's a movie starring Tom Hanks. Tell us about News of the World. I actually had read the novel some time ago in my book group and loved it. Um, it is, a, and the film is extremely faithful to the novel um, in many ways. Most importantly, because it keeps its head very close to the ground of the characters uh, and what they're doing. So it, 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 there's only certain moments at which it delivers timely lectures about fake news and lawlessness and uh, uh, and all of that, but mostly it focuses on two characters. One is, as you say, a Confederate captain, a veteran of the Civil War and several other wars, apparently, who now makes his living as a, a storyteller of the news is the best way to describe it, uh, and goes around the country um, doing this. And he uh, crosses paths with um, a little girl who uh, with white blonde hair and blue eyes. And she is played by the extraordinarily expressive little girl, Helena Zengel, who is German, uh, which works very well for the, the movie because she's actually required not to talk very much because she doesn't speak English, uh, the character. And that is because she was um, orphaned as an infant uh, and taken by the Kiowa uh, Native American tribe and raised as, as one of their own. And that is the world that she knows. Um, she finds the world she's abandoned after an incident, which I shouldn't divulge. And uh, Hanks is asked to deliver her to, back to uh, the white family that she doesn't know and doesn't care to know. So they travel through the West, and it's a Western certainly um, as a journey through a very beautiful but violent wilderness where people make up their own rules and laws. And there's a ding-dong bell there about uh, the current situation. And it's a, certainly a Western in the sense that there's a lot of action and quite a lot of violence. But I see it much more on the novel uh, focuses on the relationship between these two and the world around them. And it functions as a, a road trip to redemption that isn't only the one that we're presented with, which is to say Hank's rescue of this girl, of this little girl, um, because he, he, well, Hanks is in total Gary Cooper mode here. 
Um, better. I would say better. He's full of feeling <laughs> and warmth. and Yes, he is. But uh, this is a man with some secrets and some guilt of his own. And the wonderful thing about both the novel and the movie, um, which is directed, by the way, by the British director, Paul Greengrass, who made the Bourne films, uh, most of them, and also United 93, which was about 9-11. So he knows how to do a thriller, but he's also very good at, at character. The, the subtext of the movie, which becomes clearer and clearer, is that she, the little girl, is Hanks's rescuer, both in a physical sense, there's a wonderful scene where she finds a way to provide ammunition to a rifle. Um, again, I don't want to reveal it because it's very nifty um, and very literary, uh, but also spiritually in the sense that uh, she gives him an opportunity he never had to become a parent. And then politically, because he has to come face to face with who he was fighting for and the legacy of uh, racial oppression, um, the devastation of war, uh, and it impinges on his personal life uh, in very critical ways. And uh, I personally loved it. It has had some criticism that Hanks is in too much in Hanks' virtuous mode here, but it sure worked for me. <laughs> I loved it as the story of a man who has his eyes opened, um, not only to the world at large and what America is about, <laughs> uh, but also in terms of his own character and what he has been willing to go along with in the past. So, yes, I was very moved by it. I felt exactly the same. I, I loved it. I thought Tom Hanks, thank God Tom Hanks is in charge of this little girl because there's so many evil men in Texas, although there's some wonderful women that help him along the road. The story of the white girl captured by Indians is a important genre of 19th century American literature, the captivity narrative. And of course, the original telling is this was hell on earth, you know, the poor things need to be rescued. Today, of course, we see it somewhat differently, and the movie is very respectful of the Kiowa. We can see her attachment to them. She wants to run away and go back to them, but they are being slaughtered by the Texans, so she's been doubly orphaned, we are told, and she speaks Kiowa, and I'm sure it's real Kiowa. You couldn't make a movie today where it's gibberish. So, that's kind of a, another theme of the movie is, you know, respect for the Kiowa of, of Texas. I wondered what you thought about the fact that this is about, in a way, about the news media. It's about people, how people love to hear the news as entertainment. It's exciting. They're willing to pay for it. But they also fight about it. One of the biggest scenes is when our hero kind of provokes a riot, a mob, a battle, in a town where the newspaper and everything else in the town is owned by, you know, Mr. Evil, uh, could this be a reference to our own situation? You know, I, it's very clear that I think that it is. And I can't for the life of me remember whether that was in the novel or not. Um, I need to go back and check. I, I read the novel online, so I don't actually have it to hand. Um, but certainly um, it is an astonishing scene because he exchanges fake news for real news and tells it in such a entertaining, arousing way that he provokes 
uh, an uprising <laughs> um, against this thug. And, and uh, it is marvelously satisfying in that sense. I'm sure that, it, you know, it, it's to Greengrass's uh, and his uh, co-screenwriter's um, credit that they don't belabor the point. They just show it. And I think that's one of the strengths of this movie. The ending, which is faithful to the novel, is at once somewhat hokey and utterly satisfying. <laughs> we, we need it. After all they've put us through, we yes. need a happy ending. Yes, yeah. So, uh, you know, and of course the, the vistas, the landscapes, the desolation and the, the beauty of the Texas wilderness uh, provide enormous satisfaction as well. It's all very widescreen, those parts. So the trade-off between intimacy uh, and a wider, you know, socio-political perspective is, is brought off, I thought, very... Uh, Beautifully. And where can we see News of the World, the Western starring Tom Hanks? Almost everywhere as of um, uh, next week. Um, it's been, quote unquote, in theaters, whatever that means, uh, for a couple of weeks. But next week it opens up on Amazon, Apple TV, U YouTube, AMC On Demand and a host of others. I've just mentioned the the bigger ones there, but it will be, you can see it everywhere and I, I recommend it. So our picks for this week are The Dissident, the documentary about the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, starting this weekend on Amazon Prime and other platforms, and News of the World, the Western starring Tom Hanks, opening everywhere soon. Ella Taylor, Thanks so much for your recommendations this week. Thank you, John. Had a blast. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.